So maybe just before I start, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you will take my words and give, give each one of us the message we need to hear this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're continuing this, our series looking at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where he outlines for us how faith in Jesus can bring about in us a new way of living. Our values change as we begin to learn more through the scriptures, helping us to identify with Jesus' standards rather than those of the world. Becoming a follower of Christ makes me think of a new shop opening up, and there's a big banner plastered over the front window saying in block capitals, under new management. So this evening we're looking at Matthew verses 1 to 12 with a particular eye to the new compassion that Jesus demonstrates. The dictionary defines compassion as pity or sympathy, but I was paying keen attention this morning when Tom described it in his sermon as a gut-wrenching love. Throughout Matthew's gospel, he arranges his message into a block of teaching followed by a block of action, often in the form of miracles. In this very simple format, Matthew is showing us how Jesus demonstrates a pattern for us to follow. Words are followed by deeds. We hear a message and it demands a response. So it changes how we act, how we live. We are under new management. We follow the new pattern that Jesus models for us. So what does this mean for us? Let's look at the passage. Verse one, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Have you ever noticed that the failings we see in others that we find troubling are sometimes the things that we also recognize in ourselves, things we don't like to admit? Do we criticize someone who is prone to displaying aggressive behavior? Because in actual fact, we know that we also have a short fuse. Do we shout at another driver who's speeding? Because deep down, we know we too have a habit of putting our foot a bit too heavily on the gas pedal. Or on the other hand, do we pull someone up for a questionable trait in their character? Because we don't have that one. So it makes us feel superior. We can puff ourselves up and point the finger this time but let's tread carefully. Hypocrisy was one of the things that Jesus himself got angry about, and he called people to account for it. There's a whole passage on it in Matthew 23. It's only when we have recognized our own shortcomings and taken steps to overcome them that we have some experience to share with our brother, to help him on that journey of healing too. Jesus is saying, be compassionate. And he doesn't mean feel sympathy or pity for your brother. He's saying, show your love in the way that he showed his love for us. He cast aside his majesty in order to live alongside us in a gritty, earthy, human existence. 
in order to save mankind in the ultimate act of compassion. I don't know if you have ever done one of those personality tests. I did Myers-Briggs some years ago. At the end of a lot of multiple choice questions, you end up with a four-letter type. You're introvert or extrovert, sensing or intuitive, thinking or feeling, and judging or perceiving. Well, my last letter turned out to be a J, a J for judging. And that J bothered me. I didn't think it was a good thing to be judgmental. But a while later, I read that judging is not necessarily a purely negative trait. Because judging is about discernment. And that can be about seeing below the surface, not taking things at face value, being able to gain insight in a particular situation. Jesus isn't against critical thinking. Just a little further on in verse 15, he warns against false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. He is encouraging us to exercise discernment. He's teaching us to be discerning and not judgmental and to do it from the right motives, to build others up, not to put them down, and to remember that God is the final judge. Verse 6 continues that theme of discernment. It does sound pretty harsh. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. This language almost sounds discriminatory. What does Jesus mean here? At that time, Gentiles were known as dogs. They were the ones who kept pigs. Back in Leviticus 11, the Lord warned against eating pigs and therefore keeping them. Jesus had been sent to give the news first to the Jewish people. We see this again in chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the 12 into the harvest fields. He specifically says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. His priority spelt out again was clearly at this time the Jewish people. It was only after his resurrection that he told the 11 to make disciples of all nations. So at this point, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is concerned that it should be the Jewish people who receive the, the sacred message of salvation and that his listeners should not be distracted from that task by pointless arguments with those who were not ready to receive the new life he came to offer. The words dog and pig sound insulting, but I don't think we need to get sidetracked by them. Remember how Jesus, on several occasions, addressed his mother as woman. Admittedly, if someone addressed me as woman, I wouldn't be best pleased. But we live in a different age and a different culture. So today, I think the message to us is don't waste time arguing with those who are diametrically opposed to the gospel, but instead meet people where they are. Help them to scratch where they're itching. We need to be prepared to give the reason for the hope we have and do it with gentleness and respect. 
Those who are willing to listen and have a healthy debate may be closer to the kingdom than any of us know. A few years ago, God gave me a picture of those who don't know Jesus, being desperate for his love and his compassion and his healing touch on their lives. I don't know if you saw an interview on the day of Queen Elizabeth's funeral. The interviewer was speaking to Jim Motherwell, who had some years before been Piper to the Sovereign. What a lovely title, Piper to the Sovereign. Jim told the story of how he'd been at Balmoral performing his duties each day when he heard that his wife had had a bad accident and he was given leave to go to her. On his return, Her Majesty asked how Jim's wife was and he told her that fortunately there were no long-term injuries but she had been left badly bruised. The Queen turned and went back to her private apartment to return shortly afterwards with some arnica cream for the bruises. That was compassion, Jim remarked. Words followed up by action, inspired by love. Jesus warns against complacency. Coming to know him challenges us to live a different life. In our relationship with Jesus, we come to know his take on things. He says in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He models a radically different lifestyle where the emphasis on self gives way to a different perspective, where living the life that Jesus intends for us is the right path to take. He knows our needs and he directs our steps. So we move on to the next section in verses 7 to 12. It might feel as if living differently with our gaze fixed on Christ can be too hard sometimes, and he knows that. He knows us well, and he provides the solution, prayer. Ask, seek, knock. That sounds straightforward, doesn't it? In fact, the tense here is the continuous present, which is like saying, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. Be persistent in prayer. Don't give up if your prayer isn't immediately answered. Persistence in prayer can result in an answer, not because of the technique we use, but because of the God we address. I expect we've all had experience of unanswered prayer. Sometimes we might be praying for the wrong thing. If I pray for a shiny new Porsche, I'm unlikely to get one. That's not what my real need is. A new car won't deepen my walk with Christ. In actual fact, it'll be a distraction and take me further from him. In verse 11, it says, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So try asking for what you need to grow in your walk with him. It might be one of the gifts you admire in other Christians. Wisdom, discernment, faith tongues, or maybe more of the fruits of the Spirit, or so many other things. Be prepared to use that good gift, however he directs you. I wonder if we should start our prayer by saying, Lord, if it is your will. 
I'm sure it's right to align our thoughts with God's. But even then, we can't use it like Aladdin's lamp. If I rub the lamp the correct way and give the right incantation, the genie will pop out and grant my three wishes. We know it's much deeper than that. The more we read God's word and seek his will and immerse ourselves in a living relationship with him, the more likely we are to ask for the things that will build us up and develop us into the mature believers that God knows we can be. As Tom Wright reminds us in his commentary on Matthew, in the Lord's Prayer we pray, your kingdom come. So the kingdom of God has not fully arrived yet. We catch glimpses of it in many ways, the beauty of a sunset, the first smile of a baby, the wonderful sound of voices raised in worshipful song. I could go on. But God knows if he gave us all the kingdom has to offer right now, we couldn't stand it. We would be overwhelmed. Remember how St. Paul, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, was knocked to the ground by Christ's very presence. Or read what John writes at the beginning of Revelation when he describes Christ walking among the golden lampstands. John can barely find words to describe Jesus. And then he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We're just not ready to see Jesus in all his glory yet. Maybe when it comes to prayer, we concentrate too much on the unanswered prayers. I think God is eagerly watching for opportunities to answer our prayers, like the father waiting for the wayward son. Remember Peter and Siobhan sharing their experience in church a few weeks ago? They knew how God had responded to the prayers of his people and turned around their desperate situation. Their son had difficulties during his birth. He had to be flown to Sweden to be placed on a machine to enable his system to recover. And he was miraculously returned to full health and has been in church with us since. His parents are astounded by all those little coincidences that would have been so unlikely to come together with perfect timing if God hadn't answered the first prayer and the next and the next. Sometimes our prayers appear not to be answered, but it may be that our perspective is just different to God's. We pray, and let's admit it, we really want the answer to be instant. And sometimes it is, but not always. God has a wider lens. We know God by many names. Creator, Saviour, Shepherd, Redeemer, so many. But Christianity is the only faith system where God is known as love. The King of love will not withhold those things that are good for us. He's not a vindictive God who delights in seeing us grovel and suffer. He not only knows what we need, but he also, needs, he also knows the right time for us to receive it. My niece, Alison, has just had groundbreaking surgery. The procedure was relayed across the continent, and I tell this story with her permission. She'd been suffering a variety of symptoms for 12 years. 
She'd had an operation a while after it all began, but her surgeon saw that he could do nothing to help her, and he closed her up again. Her endometriosis was inoperable and incurable. She continued to struggle with pain and deteriorating health, and we all continued to pray for her. Twelve years later, in February this year, she was told by a new consultant that she urgently needed surgery. However, she wasn't called until the summer, as for reasons unknown, her name had been missed off the urgent list. But she kept on trusting that God had it all in hand, and there was a bigger reason for the delay. Her dad died four days before the date of her operation, and she says, I then understood why God had allowed me to wait so long. It was terrible waiting, but it wasn't all about me. There was a bigger picture. I could see a purpose because it provided a distraction for mum after losing dad. And now I'm off work for six months. So that gives me the opportunity to support mum. She also reflected that 12 years earlier, her surgeon would have barely been qualified, let alone experienced. Alison is now feeling better than she has done for years and is making a good and steady recovery. God sees the whole picture. His timing is perfect. So sometimes our prayers are answered years later and sometimes they're not fulfilled until after death when I believe that we will all be healed and made whole by the loving God who created us. Let us be thankful for those big prayers that are answered, but let's not overlook all the little ones that happen day to day. Give thanks for the prayers for encouragement or acceptance or provision or gifting or just bumping into the right person at the right time. All prayers that God has delighted to answer. At the beginning of this week, I thought I'd be the only member of staff at work and I prayed as I walked here that God would bring one of the others in as I needed to chat something over. And before I'd even taken my coat off, there was Ruth, an answer to prayer. And one more thought on prayer. How often do we listen to someone's tale of difficulty, distress, apprehension, and the like, and we say, I'll pray for you. And sometimes we do. But sometimes, although our intentions are good, we forget. But what we can do is to say, can I pray for you now? Our prayers don't need to be long and flowery and punctuated with holy language. We never need to feel our prayer isn't good enough. We simply need to ask God for what is needed and leave it to him. And quite often we find ourselves giving advice, don't we? But that's usually not what is needed. Remember Job's comforters. This is how Job speaks of them in chapter 6. Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavour in the sap of the mallow? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Quite often people don't need advice. Just a listening ear and our loving compassion. We shouldn't gloss over Jesus' words in verse 11. He says, 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Evil? Me? Yeah, we're all evil. We're sinners. Not one of us is free from sin. But God is. He's sinless, pure, and holy. So he is the only one who knows what is right for each of us. He is the only one who has the right to judge. But God's judgment is for our correction, not for his revenge. I'll say that again. God's judgment is for our correction, not for his revenge. Lamentation says, God's compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And so we come to verse 12. It says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It also sums up both the passages we've been looking at. Many religions say, don't do to others what you, what you wouldn't want done to you. So often, Jesus turns the expected upside down. Jesus puts a positive slant on things. Do to others what you would want done to you. Again, compassion followed by action. We can avoid doing harm to people, but it takes effort, courage, and care to do something positive for them. It might even mean stepping out of our comfort zone to take that initiative. If someone falls into a pond, it's easy to walk on by. It takes a whole lot of courage to get involved, to offer them a stick to grab onto, to call for assistance, or even to wade in and pull them out. God has acted mercifully and compassionately by jumping in and saving us. He has sent his son to free us from our sin by taking our deserved punishment on his sinless head. From Adam in Genesis, through the great men in scripture, like Abraham, Moses, and even David, God's anointed king, the Bible is about restoring things to the way God had intended them. Those men who led the people of Israel failed to create that restoration. They were sinners too. It's only Jesus, through his death and resurrection, who can save and restore our relationship with God. This was his plan all along. God's mercy, the ultimate act of compassion. Amen. Would you like to stand? Just as we respond to what God might be saying to us, you might like to close your eyes and just wait on the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit bring to light those things that he knows we struggle with, the plank in our eye. Is there something you have been longing to ask of the Lord?
You might like to hold out your hands to receive whatever it is as a symbol of what God is giving you or showing you this evening. Lord God, show us how your compassions are fresh every morning. We pray for our hearts to burn with love for others so that we are inspired to selfless action. Give us courage to follow your example, to step out of our comfort zone and to demonstrate your love in the world. Amen.